0: Resistance. This is a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. This podcast is one in which we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye towards racial justice and collective liberation. This is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do. And that is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition, and asking ourselves what wisdom do these scriptures hold to sustain us in the work itself. We hope that you listened to our 200th episode. Several of us spoke about what contributing to this podcast has meant to us in the past years. And whether you're new in listening or have been with us since the beginning, we hope that it has sparked your curiosity to go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes from the past four years too. The music that you'll hear throughout the podcast is We Are Building Up A New World. It is a live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement, and it was recorded at a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. My name is Margaret Ernst, I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording from my home home which is on the ancestral homelands of the Lenape people in what is now known as Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I live in a neighborhood called Cobbs, Cobbs Creek, and this summer has been a hot one. I know it has been all across this country, wherever you are too, likely, with heat waves making drought and wildfires worse, as every year we notice the duress that our planetary home is under as the climate changes. Most of the housing in Philadelphia where I live was not built for summer as hot as this. Temperatures have risen 3 degrees since 1970, and many of the old row Home buildings don't have air conditioning. In one of the hottest areas of the city where there are fewer trees lining the streets to keep things cool, people are crowdfunding for window air conditioners. In my neighborhood, I go for walks under the trees in a park nearby to relieve myself from the day's heat. It's a park with a creek, and as I walk down the path towards the creek bed, I can feel it get a degree or two cooler under the canopy of trees that cover the water like a crown. At this time of year, I've noticed that that raspberries grow here by the side of the path, and they are giving abundantly. I didn't see them until this year, the bushes that blend in with the rest of the summer green. I am sure they have been there all along, and now that I know, I see that they are everywhere, little bursts of pink and red poking out from the leaves. I pick a few and notice there are so many more. The raspberries right there, with no one selling or buying them, remind me of how giving and generous the earth is. How very ready to provide food, and sweetness, and color. These raspberries make me look differently at my surroundings, they make me consider what I am passing over or leaving behind that is offering a gift of sustenance. What are you noticing this summer that you haven't? Maybe it's changes that have been growing in you during these last 18 months, this time in which so much has happened and yet so many of us have stayed so still and been so separate. Has there been a change in your values, in what you know now about the world differently through the ravages of the pandemic, awakenings and uprisings against racism, assault on democracy and thundering movements, for racial justice at the same time as movements are growing and growing for white and Christian nationalism. If the world is looking and feeling vastly different to you now than it did a year and a half ago, I know you are not alone. Do you have different commitments to yourself, to others than you did before? Are you feeling tired or energized or renewed? Take a moment, wherever you are, to breathe in, check in, and take a peek for yourself, at yourself. What are you wanting to stop by the path to observe, to notice differently, and to harvest with care? Maybe it's a hope that has emerged, or a lesson, a heartbreak, a question with no easy answers, or a gift from where you didn't think to look. You can pause the recording if you want to spend some more time here. I'll be reading a story about Jesus from the Gospel of John. This story is a beloved one. It's about leftovers. It's about leftovers in the form of a few loaves that become many. If you follow along with the lectionary, you'll know we're a little late in posting. I'm talking here about last Sunday's text, so maybe you heard it preached on. But this time I want to invite you to bring yourself and your life to this text as if it were the first time you were hearing it and asking yourself where are you in this story specifically where are you as a white person who is working for racial justice and resisting racism where is that you in this story pay attention to what changes when you take This location in mind when you bring all of yourself into all of who you are in this season and time. Look for Jesus too and for what Jesus' actions might say about who God is. story goes. I'm reading from John, the first chapter, verses 6 through 14. The lectionary for this Sunday was all the way until 21, but I'll be just talking about this first part of the story. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about five thousand in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted when they were satisfied he told his disciples gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost so they gathered them up and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten they filled twelve baskets when the people saw the sign that he had done they began to say this is indeed the prophet to come into the world a sick crowd Desperate for healing and getting hungry. Jesus. Practically minded, budget conscious disciples. A little boy who brought lunch. And the leftovers that feed 5,000. This is a story that inspires food ministries in Christian churches everywhere. Can you count how many loaves and fishes, food pantries or programs you have heard run by Christians inspired by this tale? One of the most striking things to me about this story, reading it this time around, is remembering how in many other stories about Jesus through the Gospels, it is Jesus himself who is getting fed and hosted by others when he is in need. I remember how Jesus, throughout his teaching and healing work, was itinerant. So, his own expressions of radical hospitality, like this feeding of 5,000 people who seek him, it all takes place when he himself doesn't have a fixed home. As far as we can tell from the New Testament, he doesn't have his own garden to offer herbs from, a hearth of his own, or animals to butcher. He is housed and fed by disciples and friends. He stays in remote places on his own. Maybe outside, often without shelter, somehow he gets by. Jesus' hospitality is not like that of wealthy people or institutions of his time, for whom occasional generosity to the poor was seen as a virtue. Such similar to how giving to charity or philanthropy today is part of the moral code of capitalism, that those with the most should give away something to those with the least. But no, when Jesus is feeding people who are struggling and without resources, He is feeding people in situations like His own. When we get to know Jesus and God through making sense of this story, it feels important to keep in mind that hunger and need are not abstractions for Jesus. His disciples, too, do not have access to monetary resources outside of what they can earn in a day. The first thing on their mind when Jesus asks them where they will get enough food to feed the crowd is how many wages it would take to buy that much bread. Not even half a year of fishermen's wages would be enough. Like all working people, the disciples know exactly how much of their own labor money is worth and how much food it will get them. That's like when you might calculate how much food you would need to feed a stadium of people when you're making seven twenty-five an hour. You know how many days it would take you to earn that much. So the disciples can't even imagine. They give it a guess. Neither Jesus nor his disciples are in a position to be able to feed this crowd based on their class status. They don't have access to an endowment or a savings account or donations or a trust fund. And so the fact that this miracle, this wild act of hospitality takes place from the position of that need and reality of Jesus and his disciples own lack of resources that teaches me something really important in our own context you might call it mutual aid it's sharing amongst people facing the same circumstances not from a power dynamic of haves and have-nots pernicious expressions of white Christian supremacy actually take place in the disguise of hospitality. I recommend that you read Susan Raffo's essay about the role of white Christian women in Indian boarding schools who believed strongly with their whole hearts that the offering of their time, presence, skills, and resources were beneficial to the quote-unquote civilization of indigenous children which was really an act of cultural genocide. Grave sites are continuing to be found across Turtle Island in Canada and in the U.S., where children and teens were buried after having died at the boarding schools. Boarding schools were perceived as mission by the government and churches that supported them. Christian hospitality is haunted by the legacy of classism and white supremacy. By this, I mean that our ideas often as Christians, our ideas of serving others, comes from a long cultural legacy of white European elites who saw poor people in their own lands and later African and indigenous people in the Americas as other than human, as different than, less than, and both exploitable and in need of instruction and care. These ideas about inferiority and superiority are embedded within beliefs about white Christian supremacy, and they ignore the systems of extraction of land and labor that created the unequal distribution of resources in the first place. Susan describes how white Christian women in the North who fought for the abolition of slavery moved on to become the staffers of Indian boarding schools after emancipation. Out of concern, they felt over the situation of Native peoples. She writes, quote, After the abolition of the institution of slavery was legally complete, there were thousands of white people, abolitionists, who looked around, rubbed their hands together, and said, Okay, what's next? What do we fix now? These white Christians, who had fought against the wrongness of slavery, looked around and asked, What else can we clean up? Seeking to continue the work uh, to address these collective wrongs, abolitionists that Susan writes about believed that the nation had a duty to ensure that Native people could live well. But that drive was also wrapped up in cultural assumptions about what living well meant. For the white Christian missionaries, it meant individual land ownership and economic production, Along with religious and cultural assimilation. Susan continues telling us how, quote, over time, these white women shape shifted from an ethic that centered honoring and fighting for tribal sovereignty to one that enacted forced assimilation. This shape shifting was only possible because of this kind of belief system of inner dialogue. I know the way, I know what is best. I have insight that you don't have. There is something I don't know, but if I share it with you, your life will be better for it. You poor and unknowing person who has suffered. Here I am. Here I am. I have something you need. There is a lot to sit with here she is naming that is deeply important. Susan challenges white readers to look at our own lineages of care work for the same impulse, whether it's spiritual leadership or community organizing, social work, nursing, healing, many of the roles that white women have been positioned in and feel called to in order to address society's wrongs. Believing that we ourselves are not in need, or that if we are, we should be ashamed of our need, is one of the biggest lies of white supremacy. It also can be easily and stealthily make us tools of hurtful systems and keep us from each other and from a healthy companionship with our own selves and with God. In a book on hospitality, Christian Pohl writes that, quote, persons who have never experienced need or marginality or who are uncomfortable with their own vulnerability often find it easier to be hosts than guests. Sometimes they insist on taking the role of hosts even in the domain of another. giving the appearance of generosity, they reinforce existing patterns of status and wealth and avoid questions about distribution of power and resources. That's why it's so important that the hospitality expressed in Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 in the book of John is an expression of mutual aid, not the cruel contradiction of benevolent elitism. Jesus feeds people as one who, in his own humanity and social location that he was born in, needs feeding himself and knows their situation, not from a place of privilege or forced assimilation. At this story through the lens of mutual aid I think is a really important lesson for us as white people engaged in racial justice work. And it should teach us about checking our assumptions about ourselves and others when we engage in acts of solidarity. But there's something else here too that I want to pay attention to as we look at this story. In the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000 is an important milestone in the narrative because it reveals to those around Jesus who He is as the Son of God, and through Him, who God is. In John, Jesus talks a lot about where He came from, about His Father. He talks about the One who sent Him. The disciples mostly don't get it, but how He self-identifies starts to get dangerous and puts Him in major conflict with leaders. John's Gospel unfolds so that Jesus makes apparent in his actions and his words that he is indeed who he says he is, a walking expression of God on earth. To me, Christology, or what it means to believe in Jesus as the Christ, or the Anointed One, matters only to the extent that it changes what we know about who God is. This is not the first time in the Bible that people are filled through a miracle of bread. After leaving Egypt when they are not sure where their food will come from, now that they have left the condition of slavery, God shows who God is by providing manna, bread from heaven, in Exodus 16. The people say that what is available in the desert is simply not enough to sustain them. Many say they would be better off in Egypt, after all. The people are told to gather just what they need for each day, for six days, and that God will provide bread from heaven. Like with this story in John, that provision is also a test. Will they follow the instructions, even when the outcome seems impossible, and even when it seems like there is not enough? God fulfills the promise. The Israels find wafers amidst the dew that turns into bread that sustains them throughout their years in the desert. And there's a story about Elijah, a prophet of God who meets a widow from Zarephath, who has no money and no bread and is on the brink of death. Elijah asks this widow in her desperation for some bread for him. And she says, I can't. I only have enough ingredients to make bread for me and my son. Elijah says... Look again. And he asks her to make him a cake first, before she makes bread for her and her son. Astonished, the woman finds there is now enough flour and oil to feed them all for days. And the flour and oil keep on restocking. At Cana, at a wedding where Jesus was with his mother, there wasn't enough wine. In his first recorded miracle in the book of John, Jesus takes six jugs of water and with it he makes enough wine for a whole wedding party. Do you see the pattern I see? By the Sea of Galilee, Jesus chooses to show he is the Son of God. It is confirming what the people already know about God to be true. It shouldn't be a surprise that he does so by doing exactly what God has done for generations before feeding people when everyone thinks that there's not enough. Jesus takes the leftovers and uses them to nourish all. In this story, we're learning about God through experiencing what it would be like to be fed by Jesus in exactly this way. I wonder what the little boy was thinking with his pittance of bread and fish. He gives it to Andrew, who gives it to Jesus. And what was this small offering suddenly is the seed that feeds thousands because of what Jesus does with it. I wonder what someone being fed in the crowd thought as they chomped down on this miraculous bread that seemed to come from nowhere. What does it feel like to be fed by the leftovers, a whole lot of something that came from what seemed so small? I'm thinking about the times I have felt myself be nourished by offerings to me that for someone else might have felt so minor but transformed me and changed me and saved me and kept me going and thinking about times i have felt that my offerings to others or to movement and towards ending white supremacy felt so small i am reminded by the story that it is not us that transforms our own small actions and our contributions into something bigger and wider it is god Have you ever felt yourself saying, it's not enough? The systems are too big, too unmovable. The history is too deep, our patterns too set. It will never be enough. The little boy who gives his bread over to Jesus, only five loaves, gives it not knowing what Jesus will do with it. Not knowing that this will be a milestone, a sign and a wonder. Not knowing that the bread he brought and the leftovers from that bread will go so far, but the God of the Bible and of Jesus and his ancestors is a God that uses the leftovers. God revealed through Jesus that God creates nourishment from the fragments that someone otherwise might have thrown away. So I encourage you, look at what you might be throwing away about yourself, and look about who is being thrown away around you. Think about the offerings and where the transformation really comes from. Do not think your offering is too small and the problems are too vast. In fact, there is an important humility to be learned, especially for us as white folks, to see ourselves as contributing our portion rather than taking responsibility for the whole. We must do the work that is ours to do in ending white supremacy. We must do so with love and with constancy but we also must do so in proportion to our own humanity and vulnerability. It is God's work to take our actions and use our contributions for good, not for us to control the outcome, to create the world in our own image. We each have a loaf to bring to Jesus if we are humble enough to dedicate ourselves and, as Mary Hook says, to be transformed in the service of the work. We have a skill, a network, Access to resources or time or energy or creativity. Let us bring these gifts to God as we act towards a world free of systemic racism. And let us watch what the God of the leftovers can do. To take action this week, I encourage you to learn more about how your own tradition, maybe your church, your denomination, people in your spiritual lineage, participated in the boarding schools for Native children, that took children from their families and cultures. One of the lines in my family lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, right around the time that the Carlisle Indian School was founded by the U.S. military. Carlisle was the model for residential boarding schools across the country. Many of these schools were run or funded or sponsored by what were the liberal white denominations at the time, and they were sites of extensively documented sexual, manual, physical, and mental abuse. What acts of atonement are being made, if any, by your tradition to repair harm done by white Christians to Native peoples in boarding schools, and what actions are being taken in solidarity with Native communities today? You can check out the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition online for resources for churches. If you are a part of a church, bring this to your pastor to preach about, or if you're the pastor, preach about it and tell the truth. These are hard conversations to have, but you are not alone, and they are necessary ones. They are necessary not only because they are faithful acts of justice, but also because they help us to more thoroughly understand ourselves. Imagining ourselves as Christians, as to be the people who fix the world and make it after our own image is dangerous. And it gets in the way of experiencing God in our own need and vulnerability, of experiencing God who in Jesus shares life with us at our own level of suffering. Read the piece by Susan Raffo about the legacy of white Christian abolitionists whose efforts to try to fix things with Native relations led to the horrors of the boarding schools. This piece is called The Lineages Healers Have to Contend With, Working with Ancestors of Purpose. You can find a link in the transcript. Alone or even better, sit with others with the questions of Susan's piece wrestle with what she asks us to look at, the deep contradictions within many of our lineages of care as white people, and especially for those of us who come from the history of white Christianity. I encourage you to imagine a world and a society, a community surrounding you, that is centered on the kind of care that is based in consent and radical acceptance, not in supremacy. I encourage you to Imagine what it looks like, what does it feel like, tastes like. You can draw an image, write a poem, sing a song, let your imagination go. Or think about a time that you felt deeply provided for and cared for, accepted and respected. What would it be like if the principles at play in that situation were the organizing principles of our society, not just for you but for everyone? Here are these words of Maurice Mitchell, a leader in the Movement for Black Lives and the director of the Working Families Party, where he describes what motivates him in community organizing, what his vision of the world is that he wants to live in. He says, It's that simple. A world's an economy, a government, a country, based on care. Not the accumulation of wealth, not fear and division, but care and solidarity. Thanks, as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks. You can comment on our SoundCloud or on Twitter or on Facebook or Facebook pages. You can fill out a survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode. And those transcripts include references, resources, and action links. This week, there will be another episode coming with a word of resistance and vision from Nicola Torbett. Be well, beloveds. May the God who takes the fragments fill us all. Be with you in all ways and all things this week. Transforming you, changing you, guiding you, growing you, and loving you. We are built.